Welcome to the DC Debrief for Friday, October 6, 2023. I'm your host, John Stolness, and coming up, speakerless in the House. We wrap up a tumultuous week in the House of Representatives with congressional correspondent Matt Galka, a Biden border wall reversal, Trump trial in New York, more student loans forgiven, and I'll talk Ukraine fatigue with The Hill foreign policy reporter Laura Kelly. All that coming up on this edition of the DC Debrief. Just a reminder, everyone, tell a friend or family member about the DC Debrief. Help them put it into their little phones or their devices. We're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeart, Stitcher, pretty much wherever you can get a podcast, that's where you can find the DC Debrief. So we hope you'll enjoy this podcast, which aims to bring you the news of the week from Washington, DC, without all the opinion that you can get other places. I believe you can make up your own mind about what's happening in Washington. And this is the place where you'll simply find out everything that's been going on without me trying to convince you what to think. I don't think you're going to find that a whole lot of other places. So if that's your cup of tea, and if that's something you want to share with others, I would encourage you to do so. All right, everybody, let's get to the debrief for this week. House Speaker vacated. History was made in the House of Representatives, as for the first time in U.S. history, the House voted out a sitting speaker. Congressional correspondent Matt Galka has the wrap-up on what happened this week in the House. The Office of Speaker of the House of the United States House of Representatives is hereby declared vacant. By a vote of 216 to 210, the House removed Republican Kevin McCarthy as House Speaker. Led by Florida Representative Matt Gates. eight Republicans joined every Democrat to vote McCarthy out. The former Speaker's ally showing obvious frustration. The chair declares the House in recess, subject to the call of the chair. Gates was the one to bring the motion to the floor. It's the benefit of this country that we have a better Speaker of the House than Kevin McCarthy. Kevin McCarthy couldn't keep his word. For me, it's not ideological. It's about having a leader in our nation who will tell the truth, who you can trust. And that's what the American people deserve. You know, if you have to lose for something, I will always lose for the country. McCarthy said he would not try for the speaker's gavel again while bashing the hard right members of his party who orchestrated his exit. You all know Matt Gates. You know it was personal. It had nothing to do about spending. They are not conservatives. Some of the Republicans who voted against McCarthy said he was untrustworthy and they didn't like his bipartisan deal to avoid a government shutdown. McCarthy supporters say their actions splintered the conference and gave Democrats the upper hand. When you have a narrow majority, unity is our ally. Disunity is the enemy of the conservative cause. Tennessee Republican Tim Burchett told CBN McCarthy sealed his removal vote when he felt McCarthy slighted him for praying about the situation. I just felt like it was a condescending thing that he said to me. And then, you know, I said, and and the conversation kind of got heated. And then, um, and I, I just got hung up. I said, well, Lord, I guess you gave me my answer. You said, you're going to pray about it. I want to talk to you about it. And somehow he construes that I'm a Christian. I'm not going to offend somebody. I simply read his quote back. I thought there was still an opening and I wanted to talk to him about it. He never mentioned anything when we were communicating like that. All house business is effectively shut down until a new speaker is elected. Yay. Some names are already being discussed, including House Majority Leader Steve Scalise. Republicans hope to have a nominee next week. 
And the House GOP says they'll gather together next Tuesday for a forum to hold internal elections on who the next speaker will be. Two of the names we know about so far, you heard Matt mention one of them in that piece, House Majority Leader Steve Scalise, another House Judiciary Chairman, Jim Jordan. They have both officially thrown their hats into the ring. We'll see if any more are going to do that as well. And we'll talk to Matt more about this coming up in just a few minutes. High-level immigration talks. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken, Attorney General Merrick Garland, and Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas are in Mexico for high-level discussions on a range of issues, chief among them the situation at the border, the fentanyl crisis, and guns. This week, Mayorkas announced a policy reversal for the White House, waiving 26 federal laws, including the Clean Air Act, the Safe Drinking Water Act, and the Endangered Species Act, in order to approve the building of a border wall in Texas as immigration numbers surge there. He cited an acute and immediate need And authorities will be building walls in Starr County in the Rio Grande Valley sector, a place the Biden administration says is a high illegal entry point with more than 245,000 migrant encounters there in the last fiscal year. Back in 2021, the administration stopped new border wall construction, but this new project will cover 17 miles and will be used for barrier projects that were announced Back in June. Meanwhile, CBN's Hillary Powell has been taking a look at the current situation along the southern border. In Eagle Pass, Texas, families cross waist-deep water, risking their safety to enter the United States. Honduran asylum seeker Carla Yesenia Dumias says the murder of her mother and father led her here. She says, we are fleeing our country. We are fleeing gangs who have killed our family. We need U.S. support. Eagle Pass's mayor has declared an emergency due to the 9,000 asylum seekers in his town. Kevin McCarthy and Republicans targeted border crossings and federal budget negotiations that nearly shut down the government earlier this week. In a last-minute deal, the speaker dropped strict new border security provisions. And in that bill, we also tried to add 22,000 no border agents and catch and release so people showing up at the southern border would be kept in, Mes- in Mexico and the policy of inviting unaccompanied minors into our country. In other words, dealing with the immigration crisis. The Biden administration says it's stepping up efforts to speed up the application process for those eligible to work while also discouraging crossings without asylum reasons. We've made clear that attempting to cross the border unlawfully will result in prompt removal, a five-year ban on on, uh, reentry and potential criminal prosecution. And let's not forget the diplomacy that we have done with the region, including Mexico, to deal with uh, this issue, because it's not, this is a a regional issue. Porter Horn with Christian-centered Immigrant Hope sees helping these people as a biblical command. Do not mistreat them. The foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native born. People have the right under both international and U.S. law to enter the United States and apply for asylum. Glenn Youngkin in 2024. Before we jump into this story, I just wanted to read some raw data. This is from Real Clear Politics, their favorability favorability ratings for the 2024 candidates. And all of the Republican candidates are listed, as well as President Biden and the Democrats who have said that they are going to run. Would it surprise you to learn that the only candidate with a higher favorable 
than unfavorable mark. According to Real Clear Politics, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. at plus 4%, 41.8% favorable, 37.8% unfavorable. Uh, the, the Republican with the most favorable opinion is uh, Senator Tim Scott. Uh, but again, a largely an unknown, just 29.3% have a favorable opinion of him, 30.5% have an unfavorable opinion of him. The next closest is Nikki Haley, who is at negative 3%. Meanwhile, the two leaders... Joe Biden has the has uh, Donald Trump, pardon me, has the higher unfavorable rating at negative 16.6 percent, followed by Joe Biden at negative 15.3 percent. Of course, uh, the highest overall is uh, it's, it's a close race between Vice President Mike Pence at negative 33 percent, 61.3 percent disapproval or unfavorable, according to this Real Clear Politics poll. Chris Christie not far behind him at 32.2 percent. We say that. Because given these unfavorability numbers, some in the Republican Party want to see a candidate other than Donald Trump as the party standard bearer, and they aren't enamored with the other candidates who have thrown their hats into the rings. There has been a push by some of the wealthier donors in the party for Virginia Governor Glenn Youngkin to get into the race. CBN News Chief Political Analyst David Brody has more on that. A retreat at the historic Cavalier Hotel in Virginia Beach seems like a relaxing getaway, but this one will be anything but. Virginia Governor Glenn Youngkin will meet with wealthy GOP donors hoping to convince him to run for president. Matt Schlapp is chairman of the American Conservative Union. There's been now this talk that he might be the next man up, if you will, to take down Trump uh, in the GOP race. What do you make of all of the, uh, the talk about donors being interested in him now, Matt? I don't know. It's like Elizabeth Taylor getting married. Um, you know, uh, <laughs> they seem to get all hot and bothered about the next prospect. It doesn't last very long. The event, unofficially called the Red Vest Retreat, aptly named for Yunkin because of his ever-present wardrobe item during his successful run for governor. His popularity has grown after taking the lead on a popular parental rights agenda. Donors see him as a sensible, results-oriented governor who helped turn a blue state red. While donors are interested in Yunkin, the Virginia governor is playing it low-key. Are you still considering jumping into the 2024 race? Maria, I've, I've said over and over again how humbling uh, it is to even talk about my name in this context, but I am so focused on Virginia elections this year. Luke Ball is a GOP political strategist. Youngkin has done a fantastic job in Virginia. I don't think it should behoove him to jump into a presidential race in which statistically nobody is going to be able to beat Donald Trump in this race. Still, that's not stopping him from meeting with potential donors. And while he may not take the bait for 2024, all of this attention could be an investment in a campaign four years further down the road. I think Glenn Youngkin's probably, from all reputation, he's a pretty smart guy. I'm not sure he's going to take the bait on this. I don't think anybody really can beat Trump. The only person who could beat Trump is Trump. That seems to be true. Donors jumped behind be Florida back, Governor uh, Ron DeSantis when he first entered the race. But DeSantis hasn't taken off. Why would Yunkin be any different? Look, no one is going to pull votes away from Donald Trump by hopping into this race. There's not some Glenn Youngkin faction among the Trump 2024 base that is going to say, oh, Governor Glenn Youngkin has jumped in. Well, suddenly I'm going to go over and rush to him. Of course, donors want a candidate who can catch fire so they can dump millions into their campaign. Schlapp still believes that's not a winning combination, at least this time around.
What's your message to the donor class about all of this? Look, if the donor class wants it's you. This. Remember this one when we were kids? <laughs> Schlapp says Yunkin and the rest of the pack have one similar flaw that conservative primary voters will notice. They don't like this idea that a small cabal in D.C. or New York think that they're going to pick the nominee. And those people are going to really have no role in deciding who the nominee is. And I think it's great. That leaves Yunkin with food for thought as donors get ready to knock on his front door. David Brody, CBN News, Washington. Trump New York trial. He's not on the campaign trail this week. Instead, Donald Trump spending the week in New York taking part in a civil case brought against him by New York Attorney General Letitia James, claiming Trump misled people and overvalued his assets when applying for loans and with other financial dealings. Trump claims it's all a witch hunt brought about by an attorney general who simply doesn't like him. You borrow money, you pay it back, and you get sued by a political animal. And that's where we are. And that's the way it goes. And that's why New York State is failing. And that's why companies are leaving by the thousands. Before each day of this trial, Trump held court with the media before entering the courtroom. In uh, one of those uh, meetings with the, the media. He said that he would rather have been campaigning this week, although it should be noted he was not legally required to be there. He also complained that he was not receiving a trial by jury and that he, like everyone else, was entitled to a jury trial. However, there has been reporting that Trump's lawyers had the opportunity to ask for a trial by jury, but uh, did not check a box in the paperwork in order to do so. Trump has disputed that uh, as well with some of these public statements before the trial. Letitia James says she was just doing her job. My message is simple. No matter how powerful you are, no matter how much money you think you may have, no one is above the law. And it is my responsibility and my duty and my job to enforce it. Judge Arthur Angoran, who is uh, overseeing this case, issued a partial gag order against everyone involved, including the former president, after Trump attacked the judge's clerk in a social media post on Tuesday. And the judge said neither side can make any comment about his staff. Trump said the clerk was a girlfriend of Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer in a social media post after a picture was released of her standing next to uh, Chuck Schumer smiling. And the president... Um, said that the case should be dismissed immediately with this revelation. Trump on Wednesday then attacked the judge. This is a day after the partial gag ruling was put in place while speaking to the press after the day's proceedings. And that technically not a violation since it was an attack on the judge himself and an, and an attack on the attorney general and not on the judge's staff. So technically not a violation of the partial gag order. Student loan forgiveness. The Biden administration is providing debt relief for an additional 125,000 student loan borrowers, totaling $9 billion in forgiveness. This comes just days after federal loan payments began again after a three-year pause. Despite the Supreme Court striking down their original plan to forgive up to 20,000 in debt for borrowers, these cancellations are due thanks to three different existing debt relief programs that officials say have been plagued with problems over the years. Since my administration has taken significant action to provide student debt relief to as many borrowers as possible as quickly as possible, that starts with making sure the existing system works and the way it was supposed to work for student borrowers. 
53,000 people will have their debt canceled under the Public Service Loan Forgiveness Program, which wipes away remaining student loan debt after qualifying public sector workers make 10 years worth of monthly payments. Nearly 51,000 borrowers who have been in repayment for at least 20 years are getting relief thanks to a recount of past payments. The Biden administration found that these borrowers already qualified for student loan forgiveness but were missing out because of past administrative errors. And then another 22,000 borrowers who have a total or permanent disability have now been approved for an automatic debt discharge through a data match with the Social Security Administration. White House officials say that the new discharges bring the total approved debt cancellation to $127 billion for nearly 3.6 million borrowers so far during Biden's time in office. Supreme Court Disabilities Act hearings. SCOTUS heard oral arguments in Atchison Hotels LLC v. Lofner, a case that will help define what companies and organizations need to voluntarily disclose to the public regarding accommodations for people with disabilities. The justices are being asked to limit the ability of what are called testers to file lawsuits against hotels that fail to disclose accessibility information on their websites and through other reservation services. The issue in the Supreme Court case in, that we're talking about here is whether a woman named Deborah Loeffner, who has disabilities, whether she has the right to sue a hotel in Maine that she says lacked those accessibility information lacked that accessibility information on its web, website. Now, she had no plans to actually visit that hotel. Uh, she also filed 600 similar lawsuits against other hotels that she was not planning to visit. And a district court dismissed her complaint, um, saying basically the fact that she wasn't going to visit those hotels means that she couldn't sue because the information wasn't there. And um, this falls under the, the testing. This woman is testing whether or not these companies are in violation by performing all these different lawsuits. However, a federal appeals court in Boston revived her lawsuit. Appeals courts around the country have issued conflicting rulings over whether these uh, Americans with Disability Act testers have legal standing to sue if these people don't intend to go to the hotels. Atchison Hotels and the business interests supporting it argue that Loeffner's admission that she wasn't planning to visit the hotel should simply end the case. However, on the other side, there are civil rights groups who are worried that a broad ruling for the hotel could limit the use of testers. And they argue testers have been crucial in identifying not just whether places are in violation of ADA um, rules, but whether um, whether they're in violation of uh, racial discrimination in housing and in other areas. So the court could rule on just this specific case, but everyone involved is hoping and asking the court to rule more broadly on testers. And so we'll see, um, you know, they, they heard the case this week, and of course a ruling will come out uh, in a few months. And there is a new senator replacing Senator Dianne Feinstein, who passed away last Friday after this podcast had already been posted. California Governor Gavin Newsom appointed LaFonza Butler to take her place, making her the first out black lesbian to enter Congress and the only black woman presently serving in the Senate. Butler is a longtime union leader and abortion rights advocate. She said she's undecided if she will run to fill Feinstein's seat long term when both California seats are up for reelection next year. That'll do it for your debrief for this week. And now let's take the first of our two deep dives for this week. Want well, to talk a little bit more to us about 
what we saw this historic day in the House of Representatives earlier this week with Kevin McCarthy ousted as Speaker of the House. Matt Galka, our Capitol Hill correspondent. And Matt, what a weird week in the House of Representatives. Certainly, I think, even though a lot of this ahead of time in the over these last few weeks, the possibility of this has always been there. So it wasn't shocking that this happened. And yet I think it still seems as though so many Republicans and really so many in Washington were surprised that this happened. Is is that the vibe that you think has kind of been emanating like a, a not shocked, but surprised that it actually all went down? Yeah, I think that's a good way to put it, um, because if you look at uh, how this um, congressional term has gone, uh, if you want to go back to when Kevin McCarthy was elected speaker, uh, we could call that the season premiere. Right. And during <laughs> the season premiere, they were planting the seeds for the other plot points throughout the rest of the season. And one of those seeds that was planted was. Well, they're going to change the rule for the motion to vacate. Mm. That's what Kevin McCarthy needs to do in order to shore up votes so he can get the gavel. He's going to change the rule. And Kevin McCarthy would come out and he would talk to the reporters and he would say, well, that was the same rule until Nancy Pelosi came along and she changed it. And so it's it's always been that. It's not a big deal. You know, he he downplayed it. But it was always in the back as this looming threat. Now... I'm not going to pretend to be an expert of past congressional terms, but I'm not sure that there were as many members of Congress at the time, or it was as splintered in um, both parties where you have different factions that would be willing to wield this tool mm -hmm. uh, as we do now. And so you, you go back to then when he had to change the rule back among other rules. And here we are, and so I think the not shocked comes with, yeah, we knew it was a possibility, but surprised in that it's never happened. It's the first time ever. It's historic. The definition of historic is the first time. <laughs> yeah. So I think that's where the surprise is because I, you go back to sports, right? And, 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 and like I always hear an announcer say, stranger things have happened. Mm -hmm. And usually that's not the case. I mean, you know, <laughs> yeah. like this is not a case where you'd say stranger things have happened because this is the first time. Yeah. So I, it was always, the threat was there and it was always in the background and then it happened, you know, and, and, and you could say just based on the history of every, how it all went down. I mean, Kevin McCarthy made his bed and mm -hmm. now he has to lay in it because it, he, he was the one who allowed that to be, uh to to that rule to change and now they're talking about changing it back because of how disruptive it's been well i think anybody who was paying attention back when he got elected said could have said at the time this has the chance to be uh to be a real problem and the real problem's here and of course there's going to be mccarthy's allies who are attacking these um these eight to 12 members of congress who have been against him as speaker and voted against him um voted to vacate um these these hardline right republicans and i know they a lot of them would bristle at being 
called hard right, but um, they felt betrayed by Kevin McCarthy. They felt lied to. Um, and you have the Democrats who are, are looking at the Republican conference and cr obviously heavily criticizing the chaos that was consumed there. And then you have the hardliners who look at the, the moderates and Kevin McCarthy working with Democrats and, and not liking that. It seemed as though Kevin McCarthy left himself with like he he dug his own grave in a lot of ways for the very reasons that you mentioned he wanted the job so badly he was willing to put into place a set of parameters that essentially acted like quicksand for him so that he there it was impossible to please everyone that he needed to please and still have a government that functions is that fair i i think that's more than fair i i mean I think when I when I was a younger kid, uh, there was a phrase that was thrown around and I forgot who said this to me once. It might have been through football, but uh, you try to be everything to everyone. You're nobody to nobody. Mm -hmm. and, and and like I think Kevin McCarthy did try to be everything to everyone in his conference and learned real quick that he can't because. And, and, and to that end, though, I think it's a very fair gripe to say that 90 for 96% of Republicans in the House wanted to keep him. Yeah. I, I mean, there were eight, eight that, that said no. And so I think it's fair to say, like, you know, this wasn't a universal ousting. You know, they want mm -hmm. the American people wanted McCarthy out. I, I don't I don't know if that's fair with with the numbers and the people backing him that was, it was so skewed. But but when you get into this situation of a divided Congress and um, not only a divided Congress, but factions of the party, mm -hmm. um, you, you have to make tough decisions. And 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 if if you miscalculate with how slim the margin is, where you can only afford to lose five members of your own party, when if you miscalculate and you anger a section of your party, I mean, you're on the hook. It doesn't matter, you know, like. It's it's I, I know we're going to get into the Democrats in a second, but like, yeah. you know, they're not going to come save you. I, I mean, and and again, you go back to that rule change. This is the the perils of that rule change. Like you can make the argument like, well, this gives the power back to each member. OK, but at the same time, that's also <laughs> gridlock. We're, we're seeing that now because the House business is suspended. So right. it's a very it is. I mean, it's wild, you know, yeah. it's wild. It just, yeah. it wouldn't happen like this in most other facets of life, you know, yeah. and it's just, it's just wild. Yeah. The very, 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 very small minority of a group having that much power because the margin is so small, this, this one member ability to, to vacate wouldn't be as perilous if Republicans had a 20 seat majority right, or a 15-seat majority, they, they would have needed to get an additional dozen or more people on their side to oust Kevin McCarthy if, frankly, the midterm elections had gone the way most Republicans and most analysts thought they would go if the red wave had happened. Suddenly, you wouldn't, th this one, this one member ability to 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 vacate the speakership wouldn't be a big deal be, because you might have this member float this out there and then it wouldn't go anywhere. But because only really four people, five people needed to be brought on board here, 
the this small group has that much power and so and so mccarthy was there was a lot of speculation as to whether or not he would make a deal with democrats to to save his gavel but it certainly became clear and i think this is where most analysts believe mccarthy um really lost his speakership was after after working with democrats to keep the government open he went on the sunday shows and blamed Democrats for a lot of the problems that we we're having with with funding. So he was working with them or, or using using their numbers to kind of help keep the government open and, and keep government functioning, but at the same time bad mouthing them, but all the time knowing that if this motion to vacate came up and he had to know it would have, he was going to need those Democrats. And so Matt, it can kind of explain what the ultimate reason why Democrats decided not to go and save his gavel again not surprising that they decided not to save him even though it opens up uh it, it, quite a, a big question mark as to who's going to take his place now yeah you know i i guess i'm looking at this situation too practically <laughs> and and what i mean <laughs> all, by that when is, it comes to congress we all look at things improperly practically you know yeah because this this is the part that didn't make sense to me now what makes sense to me is that kevin mccarthy or any Republican really would stand in front of a camera and it's just the way it goes. You try to spin literally everything to blame the other party. Like that's politics tale as old as time. Right. I, I mean, I think we can all understand that we could debate how, you know, just how splintered it's become, but I mean, it's, it's not shocking if a Democrat goes in front of a camera and blames Republicans, it's not shocking if a Republican goes in front of the camera and blames Democrats. It's not, but what I didn't seem to understand, you know, McCarthy stood up there uh, after he announced he wasn't going to seek the gavel again, and he he did pin a lot of this on Democrats, as he had said the Demo before that the Democrats bring us to the brink of a shutdown and this, and he and he kept blaming Democrats and blaming Democrats and blaming Democrats and raking them over the coals because that's what happens with with you know with the party and and that's what happens in in gamesmanship right. But then to just keep bashing somebody and bashing them and bashing them and bashing them and then expecting them to swoop in and save you. That that's the part that I didn't understand. Yeah. Now another layer to that was they probably would have saved him if he had cut a deal with them mm -hmm. to okay, you're going to get this committee or we're going to hear this bill or or any other any however the sausage gets made in the in the deal making process they might have come in and saved him but he said he wasn't going to make a deal with democrats so if you're not going to make a deal and you're going to keep blaming them for everything why would he expect them to say why would anybody expect yeah. the democrats to come and save him? and 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 if you're a democrat i mean i don't know who's going to be the next speaker i know there's names out there steve scalise jim jordan uh, at least Stefanik name, you know, other house leadership uh, has been thrown out there and, you know, they're going to come in and, and they're going to, what it's going to be the same situation. It's going to be a different name. They're going to be in the same situation uh, unless they change that rule to motion to vacate. So it's not like the Democrats, whoever comes in, the Democrats are in all of a sudden in this serious disadvantage position. It's just, I mean, you would think like it's business as usual for them, just a different name on the, on the, uh, on the sign in front of the speaker's yeah. office.
And I know one of the reasons, the other reasons Democrats had said that they didn't want to support McCarthy is all the work McCarthy has done over the last couple of years raising money against Democratic candidates. Obviously, that's his job is to is to push Republican um Republicans against some of these Democratic members, but they just found it unappealing and unpalatable to go out of their way to support someone who had been so good at raising money to try and defeat them uh, in, in their races for for Congress. That that factored into it as well. And McCarthy has ruled out running again. I don't I I don't know why that was even a question after you've just gotten voted out and there's really nothing has changed why you would run again it doesn't make a whole lot of sense but um you mentioned a, a couple of the possibilities who who have entered officially entered the race scalise and, and jim jordan uh the two that we know of as of as of this recording we're also starting to get into some of the silly ideas matt and <laughs> I've seen some not seriously suggesting, but maybe have suggesting that something along these lines, like Democratic uh, Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries going to certain Republicans in strong Biden one districts and offering them chairmanships of subcommittees in exchange for their votes to make him the Speaker of the House. Is there any world in which Democrats can create a situation where Hakeem Jeffries or some other Democrat becomes speaker? Or is this just kind of fantasy land thinking from people who really enjoy chaos? Oh, I mean, that's just it's never going to happen. I mean, <laughs> never going to happen. I know it's fun to play pretend. We all like to play pretend <laughs> and we all like to, you know, it's it, and we all love these fairy tales. But like, this is never going to happen because imagine being a Republican in a Biden district. Um, so, okay. So you already won your race in the Biden district, right? So, so you at least know you have the Republicans there, right? Mm -hmm. So you at least know in, the, in your district, you have the Republican vote. If you then went and voted for a Democrat, you're not going to siphon enough votes uh, <laughs> for, from the Democrats in your district to save the sinking ship that you'd be on with the republicans i mean they would they would abandon you in that district so i don't I, I mean i think that's what a lot of republicans think that are in biden districts uh the it, it, the juice wouldn't be worth the squeeze there um mm -hmm. and you know i mean again it's fun to play pretend people have have thrown out donald trump's name like yes yeah. it's it's fun to play pretend but that's not gonna happen either i mean it's just not gonna this isn't well, you know, and watch, watch, I me eat my words here. Right. But this isn't, <laughs> this isn't pro wrestling. Okay. Like yeah. this isn't, this is the United House of States cards. Of it's not house of cards, you know? Right. Yeah. Right. This is the United States of America, you know? I, I mean, and, and it's just, it's just not going to happen. The, the Trump is running a presidential campaign. Uh, I, I mean, it, he's not going to, I don't think he'd abandon that in order to jump in to be speaker of the house. And I know like by the rule, like it doesn't have to be a member of the house, but come on. I mean, yeah. it's going to be a member of the house. It's just not. So it's, just, I don't know. It's fun again. And we have about a week, right? They're, they're supposed to, they're trying to figure out who's going to be the speaker and we're, you know, they're going to take a week off, which you could argue is not that great anyway, because again, there's no business getting done, but 
You got to fill the void somehow. So you float Hakeem Jeffries as like these Republicans are going to turn and it's just not going to happen. It's also important to remember that the Speaker of the House is second in the line of succession to the presidency. Um, And you have in Joe Biden a a president who is an octogenarian and whatever you might think of of the president's um, mental abilities or his physical abilities or whatever, um, I know – there's a uh, there's a wide range of opinion on into how capable the president is of fulfilling his job but when when you reach that stage in life there's a there's a greater chance of of something happening to you and so suddenly that line of succession is not necessarily as uh, as far off as as one might think so it's very important that somebody um, is in the position who you could see as as being not necessarily hasn't be doesn't have to be someone presidential but that's an important thing to consider when you're when you're looking at the when you're looking at the House Speaker position. So so you touched on it. And last thing here for you, Matt, you touched on it a second ago. It looks like next week the Republicans are going to come back to Washington and they're going to sit down and they're going to be trying to come to some kind of arrangement. Um, just real quick, looking looking ahead, what's next for for all this? Yeah, I, but that's the that's the question, John, because uh, it's it's not like there has been just one candidate who's emerged here or one name. I mean, uh, Majority Leader Scalise, Jim Jordan, who's you know spearheading the uh, impeachment investigations uh, and and oversight, um, other members of leadership. I would be. I, I know that next week there's a forum, and they hope to get a candidate by then, but I don't how. I don't know how it's whittled down in that amount of time. I, I mean, you want to talk about deal making? Like, it, I just I I'm not in the room, but I it, it, I would be shocked if 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 it's like this quick one. Okay, we figured it out, and here we go. Um, I I don't think no matter who ends up being the candidate, I do not think. They're going to subject themselves to another 15 round marathon of voting like we saw with McCarthy. I I mean, I I don't I don't like to use the term embarrassing a lot because, I mean, everybody has their own level of embarrassment, I guess. (laughs) But like, I think if you want, you know, it took a it took a long time, 15 rounds to get McCarthy the gavel. And then he's the first guy voted out ever. I, I mean, if you don't want to say embarrassed, these are at least bruising. I mean, you look at it and as just maybe a casual observer of politics, this is bruising. And mm-hmm. I don't think Republicans want to subject themselves to that again. I think they do when they hit the floor, they do want to have it figured out. It's just like, how long is it going to take for them to figure it out and and whittle down the candidates? Because, again, you have two at least those two powerful names and more. And if 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 you have enough people who can who who are splitting that vote then it's very possible there's somebody who emerges that we're not even talking about. We're not yeah. even thinking about maybe even a moderate who could get Democrat votes. We, you know, just, just to move this thing along because in the background, the longer this goes on in the background, that CR they just passed to keep government open, that has an expiration date in November too. So the longer this goes, the, the closer you get up to another government shutdown deadline. And we're back in the same position again. So I I think they'd rather have it done sooner rather than later, but I don't know if they can. So stay tuned. It's it, given everything we saw of these last nine months, this does not seem like the greatest job in the world. 
spe- <laughs> speaker speaker of the house it just does doesn't feel like a job that uh, people should or would be wanting to go rush and do but uh, obviously some very serious names are going to be making a play for this um, and next week will be a big week on capitol hill as you mentioned the stakes are high so uh, we will be keeping an eye on this and of course uh, matt will continue his excellent reporting from capitol hill talking to lawmakers and letting us know all the latest matt thanks for coming on the dc debrief i really appreciate it Oh, great to be with you, John, as always. Well, one of the things that was a big sticking point in the budget discussions that were taking place in the House was funding over Ukraine. And certainly that hasn't been cleared up with the continuing resolution. And we're seeing in America among some, especially on the Republican side, potential Ukraine fatigue. And joining me to talk about this is Laura Kelly. She's a foreign policy reporter for The Hill. Laura, thank you for coming on the DC Debrief. How are you? I'm well, thank you. It's good to talk to you. And I know, like I said, funding a big sticking point here in these uh, in these budget negotiations, uh, the continuing resolution that was passed by Congress and the president didn't contain any Ukraine funding. And so now I know a lot in Washington who want the United States to continue to support Ukraine, be it some with direct financial aid, some only with weapons, whatever it may be. All that is kind of in limbo right now, isn't it? Yes, very much so. I mean, so, do you want me to? <laughs> please, yeah. So, so what's um, what are the next steps here? Like, what what is the level of concern that that you're hearing about here in D.C.? It's it's a lot of concern. It's very worrying. I mean, as far as next steps, those are really up in the air because first of all, we have to just get a new House Speaker for the Republican majority. I mean, the House can't do any work until they elect a Speaker, and it's very unclear how long that will take. The government is funded until November 17th. Congress went home for this week, so they'll be coming back next week. But when they come back next week, will they have a viable candidate that can unite the conference behind that person? And can they get through um, an election in one vote? Or will we see a series of votes like it took for Kevin McCarthy to become speaker, which took 15 rounds? And then even once the speaker is elected, Will they be able to get into all the things that need to be done to run the government, uh, to pass the next government funding bill? And if they're going to pass the next government funding bill, uh, what will the fight like? What will the fight be like over Ukraine aid? Given that the continuing resolution it only passed once that six billion dollar request, which was far less than the President Biden's twenty four billion dollar request. Um, was axed. And again, President Biden's $24 billion request was only meant to supplement a few months left in the year 2023. And so if it's this difficult to get money for a few months, what is it going to look like in terms of America's, what the Biden administration wants and what um, supporters for Ukraine, both Republicans and Democrats, want is a uh, is a, a robust American commitment for the long term for Ukraine. So it's there's a lot of moving parts here. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And one of the things that we've heard from the Republicans who are supportive of continuing to fund Ukraine is that the majority of the majority are still in favor of funding Ukraine. And do you find that to be the case? I mean, in one respect, maybe yes. But we saw with a vote on um, Ukraine on on a, a different position of 
assistance for Ukraine that a majority of the Republican conference voted against it. So there was a vote um, last week or two weeks ago that was for $300 million um, for Ukraine aid. This is a this is a small amount compared to the billions that the United States has provided over the course of um, a year and a half. And this $300 million is really kind of historical assistance that the U.S. has provided since at least 2016. So this became a sticking point for Republican hardliners like Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene. Kevin McCarthy flipped on his position. Um, He said he was going to take that money out. He said he was going to leave it in. And then eventually he took this money out to hold a separate vote on it. Some Republican critics say that any assistance for Ukraine should really be dealt with on its own, I guess. So some people can kind of stake out these positions, whichever they think are more politically advantageous. So the vote on this $300 million showed that a a majority of the Republican conference was against it. The money passed because it had the support of Democrats, but that just shows you where the trend lines are going. What other areas of the world, what other countries that you've been taking a look at are also possibly experiencing Ukraine fatigue? Yes. Well, so I wrote a piece the other day about the cracks in the uh, coalition supporting Ukraine are starting to deepen, um, given that, uh, you know, all this chaos in Washington between the fight for Ukraine, but also that it just um, uh, gums up the uh, ability for the U.S. to uh, to do other priorities like fund the government, that gives other countries pause in what they should do and whether they have to increase their own funding. Um, and for in in the European coalition, Hungary has long been an outlier um, with uh, Prime Minister Viktor Orban um, really going against the grain in terms of uh, democratic rollbacks and and fueling this populist support among his um, among his base. And he has been opposed to sending military aid to Ukraine. He has frustrated efforts within the European Union um, to to give robust support to Ukraine. He's um, held back on ratifying Sweden's accession to NATO. Um, and now he's there's some countries that are kind of getting on that bandwagon. We see their elections in Poland coming up in October and it's kind of unclear the um you know the real motivations of some of the Polish uh the remarks by Polish officials in the um in the government now who are looking for re-election. They kind of started this feud with Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky over grain shipments into Poland because it was a a market kind of thing. They want to protect Mm. Polish farmers. So they said they don't want Ukrainian grain sold in Poland. Um, And it kind of made this uh, war of words. And you had the Polish prime minister saying that Poland would not Um, send any new military assistance to Ukraine. It's unclear if they will actually follow through with that. Poland has been a really strong supporter of Ukraine, taking in about 1 million Ukrainian refugees on top of Ukrainians who aren't using services in Poland. So there's a lot of strain on the Polish public in general, a year and a half. Um, And then we saw the recent elections in Slovakia, a pro-Kremlin politician came out on top in parliamentary elections, and that politician will be charged with trying to put together a government. So it's still unclear if um, 
the rest of the uh, political parties in the Slovakian government will will join and then give this person a platform to become prime minister. And this person, Robert Fico, has talked about um, ending uh, military assistance to Ukraine, um, pushing for peace talks that um, people say are premature and um, between Russia and, and Ukraine um, and and just kind of gone towards a more isolationist stance. How has the Kremlin responded to all of this, this growing sense that maybe there's a Ukraine fatigue going on around the world? Yes, well, um, Kremlin spokesperson Dmitry Peskov, after um, I think it was the vote on the continuing resolution in the U.S. without the Ukraine aid, remarked that this was something they had expected and that they um, predicted that war fatigue would fracture um, this coalition and that countries would um, would tire of supporting Kiev. In their mind, it's because they think that uh, the Ukrainians aren't worth supporting and uh, Russian President Vladimir Putin doesn't think that Ukraine is a real country. So that's the message that they're pushing out there. <laughs> <laughs> and Ukraine, for their part, are they aware or do, do they have a sense that there's some fatigue going on? And if so, what kinds of things are they doing to continue to rally support? Yes, I think um, I, I think there's definitely an awareness that they realize it gets harder and harder to rally the support of um, of the coalition uh, to help them. And so Ukrainian President uh, Zelensky, I mean, he took a trip to Washington uh, to really have face to face meetings and really implore people personally on the importance of supporting Ukraine in this moment. Uh, but looking to the long term, Ukraine is looking to increase its own capacity to um, build weapons and not only build weapons for its own use, but then be able to export them as well, as we see a lot of uh, militaries that have supplied Ukraine needing to refill their own stocks. So maybe kind of a new military industrial base within Ukraine. Um, but that really can't happen until Ukraine has uh, total control of its skies, um, if it can uh, defend against Russian air attacks. Um, and for that, it needs um, fighter planes like the F-16s that are uh, making their way there uh, at some point um, and increased air defenses. That's what they're really looking for as well. And Laura, last thing on this, President Biden obviously has been hearing some of the criticism, especially from those uh, on the right in the House who are growing more resistant to funding Ukraine, certainly not without some kind of uh, exit strategy or goals or end, end, end times or some of the guardrails that uh, some of those folks want to have in place. He's preparing a major speech on Ukraine. He made that announcement this week. At, as of the time we're speaking, we don't know exactly when that's going to be. But what are some of the things you're expecting to hear from him when he does make this speech? I think President Biden will kind of strike a balance between the practical nature of supporting Ukraine and the symbolic nature of supporting Ukraine. Um, practical because it pushes um, it pushes back against uh, really a violation of international norms, where Russia launches this invasion of a sovereign country with with absolutely no justification. And this country has asked for help. And um, in the U.S 
and national security interests to push back against such Russian aggression and and Russia's disregard for how the world um, really operates. This is a, a good value, a good investment, a good return on investment in that the U.S. is sending weapons directly from their own stockpiles and we're passing money to then replenish our stockpiles. So now maybe in turn we're updating our military capacity um, and with no cost to American lives compared to other wars in Iraq, Afghanistan, and, and historically. So there's the practical nature of it. And then the symbolic nature of it is, you know, what I've been hearing from uh, from from people abroad is that if America isn't there, America, the most powerful country in the world, like who who is there to stand up to a bully? And what do um, what do having values actually mean if we're not prepared to defend them? And Ukraine is a democratic country. It has fought very hard for its democratic for its democracy, and it has its problems, namely corruption. But it's working towards fixing those all the time. And if we don't stand with those countries then what kind of world do we want to live in? So I think it's going to be this balance between hearts and minds. <laughs> yeah. Well, if you want to read everything Laura Kelly is writing about Ukraine and her foreign policy beat that she covers over there at The Hill, make sure you go to The Hill and, and check out their work every day. They really do a great job covering this stuff as well as everything going on on Capitol Hill and across the country. Thank you so much, Laura, for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. All right, well, let's take a look ahead at what might be coming next week. Of course, uh, the House Republicans will gather together to uh, vote on a speaker and informally on Tuesday with uh, an official House vote happening on Wednesday or Thursday, most likely. And as I mentioned earlier, look for Donald Trump to make his presence felt at the Capitol, perhaps on Tuesday. Uh, On Wednesday, President Biden, um, of this week on Wednesday, uh, President Biden announced that he will make a major speech on Ukraine. We we talked about that just a moment ago. We don't know when that's going to be just yet, but more than likely, It will be sometime next week. And we'll be also keeping an eye out for inflation data for September that will be released on Thursday. We'll get our latest look at how inflation is faring in America. All right, time for the closer. And we're going to talk about Democratic Congressman Henry Cuellar, who was carjacked this week in Washington, D.C., up on Capitol Hill. He described the incident to MSNBC, saying three young men approached him and demanded his car. So I looked at one of them, said, I want your car. Uh, He had a gun pointed at me. Uh, I looked to the to the other side. There was another one with a gun pointed at me. I looked behind me. There was a third guy uh, behind me, uh, and I said, "Sure, you know, you got to stay calm under situations." You get, I gave him the key, uh, and they took off. And then within minutes, uh, both the Capitol Police and the Metro Police were there. Uh, I want to thank them. They moved very very fast, and I like I said. Uh, They were able to recover the car, my phone, within a couple hours. I want to thank them. But what really got me upset is that they stole my sushi. That's what got me upset. Cuellar was not hurt, but Republicans are pointing to this incident as more proof of the rising crime rate in urban areas as an epidemic this time affecting a member of Congress. And that will do it for this week's edition of the DC Debrief. Again, please make sure to tell a friend or a family member about this podcast. We're just trying to bring you the news from Washington, DC, without trying to tell you what to think about it. So if that's your brand of tea, uh, please let us know that by listening to us on Apple Podcasts and leave a five-star rating and a review to let me know what you think about the show and share it with your friends. Thanks everybody for tuning in. We'll talk to you next week right here on the DC Debrief. Thank you.